Hi Chris, how are you? Good evening Rod. Yeah, here we go. Episode 72 on the 15th of June. And it's one, I think one week after we recorded roughly, which is good in a way. I know we're late, but it's good because at least we've got a week of feedback to give. Absolutely. I think we've had time to maybe run the betas. We've got news we haven't talked about in a while. So I think it's all, we're all good to go. So should we get straight into it? Let's fire straight into it and we'll try and rattle through some of these topics. We got a little bit of follow-up, mostly from me. I threatened to do this two weeks ago, was to talk about the Carpuride W901 head unit thing um, that I ordered from China. It hadn't arrived, well, it had just arrived in the WWDC show, so I didn't have a lot of time to think about it, but I guess it's given me more time to actually use it. So this is a nine-inch LCD device that you can stick to the windscreen of your car, possibly motorbike. It's got a number of mounting options, so it's got a sticky thing. You can glue it to the dashboard, or you can even mount it in the CD tray if you've got a C- still got a CD tray of your existing vehicle. I chose not to do that because it would get in the way of the of the radio that was there, and that would not be family friendly if I was blocking radio two from display. So it stuck to the windscreen. It's very low down in my van. And it's an interesting little device, I think. I thought I'd give just a little review of it and what it can do. Basically, it's a wireless CarPlay head unit. I presume it's running some form of Android underneath it all, but it will do CarPlay and it will do Android Auto. I don't have an Android Auto device to test out on. It's reasonable LCD screen. It's nice and responsive. And it works as advertised. So you plug it into the cigarette lighter. That was a bit of a pain. I had to go and buy an additional PD cigarette lighter adapter and take the one standard car plug thing the cigarette lighter plug thing and with a bit of jiggery pokery i bought a bunch of adapters from amazon it's not good for radio but to show it to chris it's got a bunch of end pieces for sort of 9 volt 12 volt sockets and things like that and convert it to be USB-C. so i've now got a dual head USB-C, quite form-fitting cigarette lighter adapter one of which powers, powers my magsafe connector and one of which powers this thing but it actually works fairly reliably Slightly annoyingly, you have to turn it on when you get in the car. It doesn't power off when you know when the engine's off, but that's a fault of my car as much as anything else for always having the USB-C, the USB powered rather than it coming on and off with the ignition. So you press and hold a button, and within about 15 seconds, you get a wireless CarPlay connection. It immediately goes to the phone, and it works fine. I get a 9-inch wireless CarPlay display up on my screen. The screen's quite responsive. I can do all the CarPlay things. It just works as advertised, really. It's, it's, it's not bad. That sounds sounds good, and it sounds relatively quick. So I think we talked a little bit about my father-in-law getting CarPlay, and that took quite a long time to connect wirelessly. I, I think I was shocked because I guess I'm used to the BMW implementation, and it's really quick to connect. So is it well made, and does it does it balance okay? Because you have to put it on the on like the dashboard. Am I correct in saying that or not? Well, it's it can be suspended anywhere up the windscreen you want, but it's a nine-inch thing, so I didn't really want it in my line of sight so much. So it's, it's mounted really low on the windscreen and, and the van has got like a catch tray on top of the, the dashboard. So it's more or less sat the edge of it in the catch tray. So it's a bit of a reach for me to get over to it. But actually, I don't tend to fiddle with it very much anyway because, you know, you set your podcast playing or whatever it is. You set your map to go where you're going and then, you you know, you respond to text or you use Siri because you shouldn't be manipulating it when you're driving anyway, really. And from that point of view, it just works like I say. It connects really quickly. It disconnects really quickly. I haven't tried it with multiple phones yet. I haven't tried it with anybody else's phones getting it because I don't know how wireless CarPlay works in that way. No, we've never tried that either because my father-in-law's car, again, we were going to set mother-in-law's and we're like, that might just cause untold pain. So we left it. But this is why you need an iDrive controller like my BMW because then you, you can use that. And you don't have to reach for the screen. That's probably good, but you should probably even be using Siri and not poking around on the screen at all. I would love to use Siri if you could understand me. That is a thing. I mean, I will say 
I think Siri's got slightly better with the beta. We can talk about that later, I guess. But uh, yeah, it's Siri comes with its attendant problems, doesn't it? Agreed. I'm always amazed by my wife, how she manages to use it all the time in the car to dictate. She's very good at it. And it works for her, but it just does not work for me. Yeah. The other thing I liked about this that made me sort of pull the pin on it, really, was its dual Bluetooth. So most of these things you need to connect with the aux socket, so the audio out of it, and then into an audio in inside your car. This actually will make a Bluetooth connection to your phone and a Bluetooth connection to your head unit. So rather than have to tune in the old FM way, like we, we did back in the day with our iPods and things like that, where you could tune to a local FM station, which this actually supports. I'm amazed it's still a thing. You can tune it in with that if you're not going anywhere. You can use the Bluetooth or you can use the aux out. It even, should you be minded to, will give you the facility to have a reversing camera if your car doesn't have one. So your BMW will have one. My Tesla has one, but the van doesn't, but it's got reversing sensors, so I've never really felt the need for it. But this supports that, so if you put it in reverse, you can wire it through your stereo to actually give you a reversing camera as well. So they've thought through some of the functions. That's quite neat, actually. And the way you like, so you can do it, FM, Bluetooth, or auxiliary cable, it sounds quite flexible. It is flexible, and it wasn't cheap. It was 200 quid, but that's still cheaper than getting a whole new head unit for your car, and it gives you a functionality they didn't have before. So, again, this it's I wouldn't call it frivolous. It's nice to have a big display with a map on it, and it's made me, and you probably find this as well, when you jump in the car to do the school run or something like that, you're far more aware of traffic. I don't tend to put in where I'm going, you know, because I know where I'm going when I'm doing the school run or something, short journey. But you can actually see cars backed up around the road where they've put in lights and there's roadworks and all that kind of stuff. And it makes you more aware of your surroundings too. So that's actually been quite a nice sort of extra feature I hadn't thought about. Now, I've certainly found having wireless CarPlay, I use it all the time, even if I'm just driving for five minutes to pick, pick the children up from school. Whereas if I hop in the other car that doesn't have it, I'll just go, I'll just put the radio on for a minute. I'll be home in five, but wireless carplay i just use all the time i think it's fantastic yeah it's it's quite it's a nice little feature so i'll more testing to be done on the on contention between multiple mobile phones and things like that or maybe not because like you say it could it could lead to fights so yeah i I, it's an interesting device it's quite well made i I would say it bobbles a bit if that makes sense you know because it's suckered onto the windscreen if you go over a bump or you go around a corner or something there is a little bit of jiggle in the device so you know what's gonna happen as long as it doesn't fall over you're okay no, I gotta say the suction is really quite impressive on it. And then, you know, I've I've panicked so much about this being in the middle of the windscreen, even though it's quite low down. And then I look at what other people have got in their cars. You know, they've got phones stuck here and sat nav stuck there. It always amazes me when I see people with Tom Toms still bang in the middle of the windscreens, but it's still a thing. It's definitely still a thing. Yeah. So that's my little review. I guess there'll be more to follow with it, but it does what it says in the tin. And like I say, I think it's not cheap. They do have cheaper models. I think they've got one for about 130, 140, which is a seven inch touchscreen. It's not widescreen. It's more of a square thing, but it works in the same way. You got to use the aux cable. But if you've been missing a feature like this, I think it can add quite a lot to your older car. It sounds great to me. And like you say, you can put it in any car. And it gets your CarPlay, which I think is fantastic, or Android Auto. Yeah, sounds good to me, and I would definitely consider it, I think, if I had an old, older vehicle. Yeah, I should maybe try and do a YouTube review as well, so maybe the listeners can see what I'm, what I'm talking about, but that'll be another time. Do it. Have we got any more for a follow-up? Not particularly. You had a question about what features get shared in contact and name drop exchange, and I know we've both fiddled with the, with the contact cards a little bit, but I have got no further forward with finding out what it does. No, agreed. I think that's probably one we just need to worry about when we find another person with iOS 17 that we can test this with. Fair enough. Let's fire into the news then. Let's do it. 
So we've got Activision and Blizzard are back at the FTC again. What's going on? This is amazing. So we thought this was a done deal, didn't we? The last time we reported on this, the EU had said yes, the FTC had said yes, and it was only the UK CMA that had said no. So Um, now what's happening? So now the FTC have changed their mind and they want a restraining order to block the acquisition from happening. So this as with Twitter, is the gift that just keeps on giving. I I don't know whether I feel sorry for Microsoft here or not. It's interesting. I watched this five-hour history of computer gaming over the last couple of days on YouTube. It's really worth a watch. If you remind me, Chris, I'll put a link in the show notes. But it is an investment in time. And it goes right from the sort of the 60s right through to the, the, the present day. And what becomes apparent as you watch this is sort of the waves of how gaming has changed over the over the years with you know, stalwarts like Nintendo and Sony coming along and Microsoft coming along and Sega dropping out of the market and all these kinds of things. But what you see is this sort of boom and bust kind of thing that goes on. And there's always something comes along to save it. So when PC gaming, for example, was looking a little bit dodgy, the internet came along and saved it. When Nintendo had released a duff console, the Wii U is what I'm pointing at, particularly when it comes to the Wii U, Actually, so did Microsoft and so did Sony because the PS3 wasn't the greatest release. After the heights of the PS2, the PS3 took a long time to build. And then Microsoft may have had the lead for a while. So you see this sort of boom and bust thing. And what the observation was was part of, as part of that was that the shift to indie studios changed gaming again. And there's a bit of a consolidation around you've got the indie studios, you've got the big big sharks in the room in the form of Steam and and Sony and Microsoft. Microsoft are actually struggling to maintain that market share because they lost mindset with the launch of the Xbox One because it was going to be DRM, there were no discs with it, you weren't able to trade games, and a lot of gamers moved to the PS4 at that point and have kind of stuck with Sony through the PS5 generation as well. So Microsoft, despite Games Pass and all the innovations they've brought, are actually struggling. So there's ma- they're trying to make these big act- acquisitions in order to give them the one sort of certainty in the world, which is people will buy Call of Duty year in, year out, if it's a dreadful game or not. It's a guaranteed revenue stream. And putting that into the hands of gamers and not people who want TV or fripperies with a console is a fairly safe bet. So I see Microsoft's desperation here in that sort of context. They need those big studios to keep the the gamers coming to them in this console generation. No, I agree. I understand what you're saying. They do. And you, you, we have seen, obviously, with games, consoles, boom and bust. It's interesting you mentioned the PS5. I find it quite interesting because I don't know whether the PS5 has really taken off yet because most people still seem to have a PS4 because they had such, obviously, a constrained supply release. And then there aren't that many games that are just PS5-only titles. They are better, but, but there's not a lot that's PS5-only. I think we should feel sorry for Microsoft at this point, and I'll tell you for why. Because it all got through. I wasn't feeling that sorry for them before it had been passed, but now that that decision's been reversed, you've got to feel sorry for somebody because they were given false hope. That would be my view. Yeah, a little bit, and I can't cry too much for the company with the hundreds of millions and billions of dollars in the bank, frankly. That I, in the same way that you know, if Apple have the odd decision made against them, you know, we're going to come to you know sideloading and things like that. Unfortunately, these big multinational companies they can afford it and they might have a business plan, but they have the capacity to recover. If Nintendo loses the ability to make games, that company goes under because all they do is make games and games consoles. If Microsoft lose this deal, Azure's not going away, Windows not going away, Office isn't going away, Teams isn't going away. This is not make or break for them. It's just a, it's a segment of what they do. Yeah. Yeah, it's a division, isn't it? Yeah. So it's it's interesting that it's not going away. There are obviously concerns about this level of consolidation in gaming. Yeah, it's got to be a concern, isn't it? People just keep buying companies and getting bigger and bigger in this in the same space. Yep. 
and something else disruptive will probably come along and change things again in the way that the internet did or or whatever happens yeah okay all right should we move on so we've got what's going on with google open source project so many people might not know but android is built on linux so many things are built on linux and and it's their flavor of that so bits of of android have to be open sourced really so that the community can understand what's going on that's part of the the the, the licenses that the operating system that linux requires so google as good stewards of the open source community have been releasing the android open source project so the open source parts of, of android for many years now but they're gradually beginning to drop features from them and the latest sort of features that have been dropped are the dialer so the phone app and the messaging app out of the Android open source project. So the kernel is still there. You can build Android. But the bog standard, no Google Google stuff in it at all, is getting slimmer and slimmer all the time. So it's just interesting how these features are sort of being dropped from an open source project. I wonder if that's because they've got some secret source in there that they want to keep secret, maybe? I don't know. Well, we know messages is of interest to them with all the RCS stuff they're trying to go over with, with Apple. So that might be a feature. I, I slightly wonder about this story and... I wonder how many people use the bog standard messages app on Android anyway, because you can install Samsung's one or you can install, you know, Google Duo or one of these other things anyway. So eh, that might be nothing, but your phone app, surely you want a fairly reliable phone app on your phone. Yeah, or maybe you don't want the code there, you don't want people exploiting it maybe and looking under the covers. It's, It's hard to know, isn't it? I don't know. I mean, part of the argument of open source stuff is by making it open, you make it more secure. And, you know, that's certainly been the case for Linuxes and Unixes. They have been historically more secure than some of the closed source operating systems, Windows being the prime example, as a bigger attack surface. But when you know the code and you know the bugs that are there, it's, people can fix it. Yeah, no, that's fair. That is fair. It is a shame they're doing it. And I was going to say, surely if you want the likes of Apple to support RCS messaging, you want to keep your open source app up there and they can see how you've implemented it. Very much. Anyway, it's a small story, but just one that's that's interesting because it's not like Apple open sources the iOS, is it? No, but there are parts of macOS. The was it the BSD kernel that's open sourced? Free BSD. Free BSD. So they still usually contribute to that every year after their major release. And Safari and Swift. Well, the Safari WebKit engine. Yeah, but other other companies make use of that. I mean, and let's face it, WebKit Safari itself, the WebKit that it's based on, is a fork of the. KDE, which is a Linux desktop conqueror browser from way back when. And then Google's Chromium engine is a fork of WebKit that they then took their ball away and played on their own. Yeah, again, as with the Microsoft story we just talked about, this is big companies, you know, take, carving off their own chunks of things and, and using it to their own ends. Yeah, well, it's always going to happen, isn't it? As they might get competitive advantage, I guess. You would hope so. We might. I'll, I'll use the word again. We didn't get de- delisted last time, but this is just further examples of inshitification, really, isn't it? Agreed. Moving on. And I, I just want to spend five minutes, I think, talking about Reddit. So before I launch into this, do you know anything about the Reddit situation that's ongoing? I do know a little bit because I've listened to a few podcasts about it. Should we just give a brief overview for the users? What sort of users are? our listenership, what Reddit is. So Reddit is a very large community-driven website where almost anything goes, frankly. So it's been around a long time. It grew out of the ashes of a a community-built website called Dig, D-I-G-G, if you remember way back in the days of the internet, which users could boost stories that they thought were interesting to the front page. So it was sort of a user-generated algorithm. As people saw things, they'd like it and they'd boost it. And Reddit, in the first instance, works in the same way. You can publish a story to Reddit. If users like it, they can boost it. It'll appear on the front page of the site. Actually, it's it's a, it's lots of forums put together. So you go Reddit slash r slash something, 
and you'll find a community that posts stories. And the chances are you'll find something you like, you might find something you don't like. There's lots of very not safe for work things on Reddit, there's some fairly horrible behavior goes on on there as well, but it's a balance, I think, and all these forums are moderated and they've got guidelines for you know racism, sexual abuse, all, all, all the kinds of things that you'd expect to be part of it, which are enforced to a greater or lesser degree. It's not 4chan, but it's actually an amazing resource of user-generated content. A lot of the, one of the stories we'll link to in the show notes, if, if you want to go and have a look at it, is that Google, what we're about to talk about, is actually suffering as a consequence of what's happening to Reddit, as are other things. So, Often, if you Google for something and you append Reddit to the end of it, you'd actually find the solution to what it is you were looking for and not what Google were trying to advertise you. So I think that's a fair overview of the site. Yeah? Yeah, no, no, I think that's fair. And emphasizing the community aspect of it. And like Twitter, third-party apps can interface with Reddit. Exactly. So they have their own homegrown one, which is actually they bought a product. I think it was called Something Blue, Alien Blue and bought that and then made that their own product as well. So usual story, third-party developer does really well. The company itself can't be bothered, so they buy it, acquire it, change some things about it. And, and as with some of the Reddit, the Twitter clones, Twitter clients, it shows the advertising of Reddit. The third-party clients didn't. So there's, a, a, again, an immediate analogy to what, what went on, on on Twitter, where it has an API, you had third-party clients to make use of it, and then the people that are in charge of it decide that they're going to start charging for the API. And this really came to a head with a developer on iOS, iOS called Christian Selig, who did a little back-of-the-envelope cal- calculations on how much Reddit were charging him for the API calls that he used, and it was going to cost him $20 million a year to maintain his client on Reddit. Yeah, it's crazy, isn't it? It feels like, and I said this to you earlier, it feels like Reddit saw what Twitter were doing and go, oh, we can do a worse job than you and screw up our, our user base, and they've just cracked on with it. But they said when they first announced they were going to do charging that it would be fair and that they were really going to work on it and work with them, and then they've just forged on, it feels like, with their own idea, trying to make loads of money. And it seems odd for a community-based site that they're actually quite a capitalist-based site. I get people need to make money to exist, but it didn't really seem in the theme of, of Reddit. I'm, I'm really surprised with how it's turned out. Yeah, and this was compounded. So they announced these pricing changes. This developer, Christian Selig, and others have said, right, well, we can't support our apps anymore. We don't make enough money from our users to be able to, to support this, despite the fact that power users and forum moderators and, and the people who actually run Reddit make use of a lot of these tools in order to manage the website. And what... Reddit themselves lose track of is they have nothing without their users. So particularly the moderators and the people who keep things straight, as Twitter is finding out with its you know lack of enforcement of some of these hate speech things and, and licensed music and all the other things that can leak onto community-driven websites like this, is that you're only as good as the, as the people that are, are, are underneath you. And doing a lot of work for you, if you think you're a community-driven web, website like Reddit, and you upset the, the community and the moderators and the people behind it, then you ain't got no content. They might think they own the content because they're posting it there, but the community can go elsewhere. And as you can already see, it's beginning a fraction fracture. So the long and the short of it is these changes where they're going to stop all third-party clients as of the 31st of July, all, well, all but some of the third-party clients that manage people with disabilities have said they're going to stop producing them. So that will force everybody onto this. And then the CEO of the company did an Ask Me Anything, Reddit is famous for its AMAs, had a very 
poorly received Ask Me Anything, the first one he'd done in 11 years, I think, since he became CEO, where he basically said, no, well, these changes, we're not going to change, we're not going to budge, this is the way it is, there is no discussion here. This guy tried to blackmail us, he didn't try and blackmail them because he'd recorded all of the interactions with the CEO. So that it was, it was making spurious comments about this particular developer as well. And... Basically, we will do this until we make a profit. Reddit is not profitable. So as you just said, I can understand the desire to make money, but it's two extremes, isn't it? It's going from a tolerable community that's respected and enjoy using your product to actually changing it so radically and so drastically with the tools that they use and the tools they want to use, you're going to put people off. Yeah, to me, it just seems like you've got a CEO that's so disconnected from the communities that they're fostering. But I've never understood with like the likes of Twitter, why they don't force the third-party clients to serve ads. If the main website's serving ads, why don't you push those down the API as well and go, yeah, if you're going to use this, you've got to serve ads too because this is how we keep the platform alive. Yeah, and I never or- work out with these companies, sorry, I never work out with these companies, if you've, if you've been going for 11 years and you're not making any money, how would you keep going? <laughs> I don't understand that. I th- you don't need to you know, make gangbuster profits, but surely you need to make enough to you know, keep the lights on. Yeah, I'd go with that. They're obviously making some money. They keep attracting venture capitalists. There's what they're doing with the data under it. And that's that's a whole other part of this. I'll finish the thought about, anyway, as a, as a response to this change in policy in the API charging, lots of Reddit threads went dark. They locked the threads, they switched them off, they, they made them unindexable to Google, which had an immediate impact on the website. And anyway, the company has just forged on. So it will be interesting to see if they maintain this position and whether... I think up to 8,000 forum threads within Reddit went dark. So the Apple thread, for example, went dark. There was no posting, no nothing. You couldn't search for historical content. And they moved lock, stock, and barrel to Discord. Another company owned by somebody that can change the rules as well. But that's quite an extreme thing to take all the users, the users from that sort of channel and just stop it. 8,000 threads went dark. 5,000 are still dark. And it was going to be for just two days. So obviously... Neither side is budging on this. The, the you know the users of Reddit are want things back the way they were, or at least in a way they can understand. And the management of Reddit are unwilling to to budge in the same way that the Twitter management were. So it's a really interesting sort of head you know face off at the moment. See who's going to win this. It is interesting, and the CEO again has said we're going to. This is just a blip. We're we're just going to carry on, even with all these Reddits that have gone dark. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see what it looks like a week from now. But equally, I worry that they're now going to lose some of their community. And therefore, whilst I am not a Reddit fan, I've, I've never really engaged with it. I don't know why, it just hasn't clicked with me. There is some amazing content on that. And as you've said, there's content on everything. Are these people going to go elsewhere? That is the question. Is this an opportunity like it was for Mastodon to, you know, in essence, become big because people go, no, I've had enough. And I'm a big believer in you vote with your feet. Go somewhere else. Yeah, I agree. And I mean, it leads to an opportunity for other community-driven websites to maybe catch some of those users. I don't think there is anything quite like Reddit. There has been a, a Fediverse, Mastodon-style one that the people are trying to get up and running with. It's a lot smaller. Not all the users have gone there. It doesn't act in the same way. And if you've been on Reddit for, I don't know, five years, 10 years, 15 years, as long as it's been there, you're quite hardened to using it the way that you want to use it. You know, you've got your, your credit scoring system that Reddit has and the way posts are boosted and, and the language that they use and all the rest of it. So to splinter your community like that, I think is a big risk because what you're doing is creating not one competitor, but multiple competitors, as with Mastodon and Blue Sky for Twitter. So neither of them have taken off particularly, but 
neither has anything got better for Twitter. And if, we, if Twitter are sort of forging the path that Reddit are going to take, it's not been a solution for Elon Musk. They're still losing money. They're getting kicked out of offices. The, the, the API still isn't accessible to others. I don't think they're going to start making huge amounts of money anytime soon. So it, it's it's not a clever business policy to follow because if it's not working for the for the bigger elephant in the room, really. Which is why I'm amazed they've just forged on with it. Like I say, you'd have thought you'd have seen what Twitter have done and going, oh, hang on a minute. Let's get the, you know, let's try and thread the needle in the right way and, and get the balance right. But they've just carried on anyway. So, yeah, I'm curious to see where this goes. Hopefully we can report next week that there have been some changes. Yeah, I just got sort of one additional thought about this is that lots of these large language models, our chat GPTs and our friends, were trained on data from community open communities with APIs like Twitter and like Reddit. So if these go dark and they're selling that content on to them, A, it's going to be historical and out of date, and B, is that where this next financial stream is coming from from these companies? That they, you know, once they've got your users inside of this, and if they continue to post with them, then they, you know, you sign up to your new terms and conditions. We will take this and we will sell your content onto this, rather than it being the open. As an academic, I could have requested an API token or or, or made use of the Red API for part of the research that I was doing, and that will go away. So that's dangerous. I think that you don't have that ability to vet what's actually going on for, for people like me and for people like the you know, chat GPT. I know, I agree. I agree. So let's keep an eye on it, I think. And like I say, hopefully it'll improve next week when we report back. Yeah. So speaking of corporate giants that things might not be going quite so well for, Google has had a bit of a warning from the EU this week where Google may soon be ordered to break up its ad business, account, which accounted for nearly $225 billion in 2022 which is 80% of Google's total revenue. The EU, or the EC, have sent Google a statement of objection detailing ad tech antitrust charges and explaining exactly why the EC thinks breaking up Google's ad business may be the only acceptable remedy. That's got to be a bit scary for Google. Be sure if you break up their business, there's not much left. Taking the, the iPhone out of Apple, you know, it's, that is the lion's share. So what is the other 20%, I wonder? Because surely in the ad business, it's got to be YouTube and search ads. Mail. Android. I'm running out. <laughs> There's got to be ads in mail, though, as well. Well, there are ads in mail, but the product itself isn't an ad, is it? It just serves you ads. Mm, interesting. It is interesting. interesting. It'd be interesting to see where this goes as well, as more companies get into services and, and all of that, which is what investors are calling for. But then if you've got investors calling for more revenue and ways of making it, and then you've got like the EU calling for you to be split up because you're too big. It's a tricky one. So again, another fine line to walk. I mean, the fundamental problem with this is Google is serving its own ads as opposed to what other people may be putting on there. So it's, it's putting itself in a preferential position for in, in place of other advertisers. It's abusing its position as a monopoly in the market. And we see this quite a lot, don't we? So Yeah, that's fair. Yeah. Again, another story to watch as part of our keep check on corporate giants. And feel free to advertise with us, Google, by the way. Uh, that you know, I think it's important to report back on this kind of stuff, and it's just a fascinating story. Yeah, agreed. It's interesting the big tech, and we've, we're now going to have a little bit of Microsoft as well, aren't we? It's interesting how we're dealing with all the big tech companies this week. Right, so they've obviously just been holding their breath and waiting to get WWDC out of the way, so so then they can announce all these things and get the bad news. Get, get you was, know hype. Do you reckon they're trying to take the the focus off Apple a little bit, but they're doing it in the wrong way? Hey, there's no such thing as bad as bad news, is there? Apparently so. 
Yeah. So this was just interesting. So the first story is about Microsoft and it's Microsoft Edge, which we've talked about a few times on this podcast, is doing slightly shady things sometimes with pre-installs and, and not allow it, not even when you install other browsers on your computer saying, no, no, you got to use Edge and making you choose again as part of the browser discovery service. Apparently now that if you view an image in Microsoft Edge, it's telling Microsoft or at least storing on the servers exactly what you looked at in terms of that image. All image links are being sent to Microsoft instead of using your device to perform those enhancements. So it kind of knows what's going on. It's a bit shady, this. It is a bit shady because they recently got found out that they were sending your browser history to Bing. They're now getting all your photos. And obviously, they're big in the AI space. So what they're doing with this data. So it is interesting because obviously it's very different to Apple's view of we're going to do as much on devices as humanly possible. And I get why Microsoft and Google do a lot more on the server end because that's their speciality. Yeah, and then tailed with this story is a, a, another one on The Verge where a user was trying to install Chrome on his new Windows 11 computer and it kept coming up with thanks for using our Bing features and suggesting you know anything except Google Chrome. And again, it's just an abuse of power, really, that they, they're always trying to force, in exactly the same way we just talked about with Google, putting themselves in a position of priority. Microsoft are just doing exactly the same thing. They switched it off when The Verge commented about it, but again, what is this? Yeah, you're really losing your impartiality for a search engine, aren't you? That is the problem when that is a product that should be impartial. It's got to hurt Microsoft slightly that they've, they've developed a web browser based on Chrome because Chrome is clearly the thing that's, that's leading place. They're a platform vendor. They can install it as the browser in the way that they used to do with Internet Explorer. And obviously they got rid of the Internet Explorer brand because it had become toxic for that reason. And now they're just behaving, engaging in exactly the same behavior again with Edge. Yeah, the browse market was theirs to lose. They were like 95% of people were using IE at one point. It was insane, but they did nothing with it. And they sat on it for too long, and here we are, and they're now, what, third, I'm going to say, at best? Surely it's got to be Chrome and Safari are up there in well, web traffic. Yeah, that's an interesting question, actually. Maybe when we talk about the next story, I'll try and do some real-time feedback about that. But yeah, okay. I, I, third might be optimistic, I think. I, I, let's, let's, let's have a guess, and then we'll look. So I'd say... I, it would, I, I, I was going to say I'm disappointed, by the way. I quite like Edge when I use Windows, and I actually quite liked it because it synced, and it was good in the corporate space because people could log in with their corporate account, sync their history and their favorites. So when they get a new device, you just log in, and everything's there, and off you go. You didn't need a separate account. So I'm a little disappointed that Edge is not the best browser. So you'd have been right with your guess. 62%, 62.8% market share Chrome, 20.72% market share Safari, 5.31% Edge, it's quite a drop between 20% and 5%. 2% for Opera and 2% for Firefox. I think that's very sad. It's sad. I've got fond memories of Firefox. I was always a Firefox user back in the day. I'm I'm using Firefox right now. Oh, there you go. Anyway, should we move on? Let's move on. And we'll stick with the Microsoft theme, I think. This was a story you put in about Teams, your favorite product. My favourite product. So I use Teams a lot, a lot in the workspace. But I just got a couple of things on Windows 11 because I thought it was interesting. We've spoken about Teams before. And Microsoft are actually removing Teams chat from Windows 11 and now pointing people towards Teams free version. So it just seemed bonkers again that Microsoft have got about three versions of Teams. You've got the enterprise version. You've got this free version. And then you've got this chat version. Yeah, just Microsoft being Microsoft, I guess, and moving SKUs around. I wonder how much time companies like this waste on getting me out to market let, leaving it for two years and then undoing it and moving on to the next thing it just shows better strategy required here I think 
this was the one they changed the branding on, wasn't it? It was Teams Free and then they changed it to Free Teams or something like that. We talked about this in the podcast. We did, and I can nearly put it in follow-up, to be honest. I wasn't going on too much about it, but I just thought it was interesting how something they baked into Windows 11, they're now unbaking from Windows 11, slightly changed in tact, but have made it super confusing. Why can't you just have one Teams app and you either sign in with your personal account or your work account is a mystery to me, but they seem to want to yeah, tweak, tweak it a little bit more and make it more complicated. It's very, t- very typical Microsoft. And we've got a second Microsoft story. Yeah, this one was me with my iPad hat on. So my Windows 11 in the latest trial, the preview version that they call it, has got what the equivalent of the iPad ink piece where you can write with your pencil on in like a search box or in a text box and it translates it in as if you've typed it on the keyboard. And Windows 11 is going to add this in, which is quite interesting because Apple did it a few years ago. Looks like Microsoft's doing something similar. I must confess I don't use it a huge amount myself, but just interesting to add it in because i don't see many windows devices with a pen or pencil that's exactly what i was going to ask you know my my sort of gauge for these things is i'm sitting in an airport lounge or i'll walk down the, the passageway on the train to go to the toilet or something like that and i'll look at people's devices because i'm nosy and the apple ones are obvious i'd say they're they're still very much in dominance you'll see you know a macbook air or something like that then the second most common sort of devices will be surfaces and i don't think i've ever seen anyone with a surface with the pencil pen stylus in their hand so yeah, I mean that's it. it I, I'm not sure it's going to be the hit Microsoft think it is. You probably, if you're a huge OneNote user, you might pull out the pencil, and, or if you're an artist of some sort. But I, I, I and an iPad, it's kind of makes sense to me. You're going to enter that mode, and you're going to t- you're going to note take, and I understand it. It's very much been sold in that the iPad and the Surface, I suppose, was originally. But as they've pushed it more towards laptops and away from tablets, I really don't believe many laptop users have the, have the stylus. No, I think it's quite interesting in the Microsoft space. I think they were pretty strong on tablets, I don't know, six, seven years ago. And then they seem to have backtracked from it and it's gone more traditional laptop format. Interestingly, a friend of mine started working at a new company in a few weeks and he was asked by the company, would you like a, an Apple MacBook Pro or would you like a Microsoft Windows device? And I, I obviously said, no, definitely get the Mac. Why are you even thinking about it? But he was configured considering the windows device because he said oh so, you know come it's lenovo yoga comes with a pen you can fold all around and do all that with it so but he's always been in the window space so i'm not not surprised but for me it was a no-brainer well, i just get a mac like well, what would you think about anything else well we're showing our prejudices of course we're going to pick the mac aren't we if we're going to that kind of thing i mean i i ask the same question when i have new starters at, at the university and you want do you want to go mac or windows and you can tell where they've come from almost everyone will pick windows and then because most of my existing staff become Mac users. I'm sure I've got no responsibility for that at all. But they tend to then become Mac curious, which I always find quite interesting. Yeah, agreed. I see it quite a lot. And we're getting it work, not on for Macs, but for iPads. A lot more people are getting into the iPad space because they're starting to see it with the cellular piece in it. It's, you can actually do quite a bit within it. Fair enough. Have we got any other news, Chris? No, I don't believe so. Should we go on to media? Let's go on to media. So I don't I haven't an awful lot of chance to watch very much this week. I will be honest. I will follow up on Silo. I'm still very much enjoying that. It's a good show. It's well produced. The sets are incredible. I've talked about all this before. They're maintaining the mystery. It's been announced that Silo Season 2 will be happening from Apple, so I'm really glad about that. It's obviously a strong investment for them, but apparently it's the most popular drama series they've ever produced. Wow. I need to get into this because... I've actually reached a point where Succession's finished, Ted Lasso's finished. I've got a bit of a void and I need something. So maybe this is it. I think you should check it out. It's 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 a good show. It's a bit of a grower and it's just it's got an interesting atmosphere for one of these things. Okay. Oh, it's on the list. 
Fair enough. Babylon 5. Do you, have you ever heard of Babylon 5? I heard of it, never seen it. So Babylon 5 was a TV show that came out end of the 80s, beginning of the 90s, about a space station in the middle of nowhere, and about a week after it came out, Star Trek Deep Space Nine. So Deep Space Nine blew Babylon 5 away because A, it was Star Trek, and B, it had a very similar premise. Interesting thing about Babylon 5, it was one of the first shows to make heavy use of computer-generated images for its background, so everything looked quite cartoony. It was all done on basically the equivalent of an Amiga, I think, all the graphics within it. But it looked good for its day, has not aged well. But an amazing IP by a writer, John Michael Straczynski, who did lots of comics, did Spider-Man and all sorts of things back in the day, so had a sort of a good track record. And Warner Brothers owned it and really didn't do very much with the rights. So it kind of withered away. I think they did seven seasons and a spin-off of it, told an amazing story. It was really compelling, some really great science fiction. But you were never able to get it anywhere because A, it looked really old, and B, the rights situation were Warner Brothers. But today has been announced a, an animated version of, of Babylon, Babylon 5, sort of a, a tale to be told after the end of all those seasons, and they're remaking a live version as well. So this is really exciting. I watched the little teaser trailer on YouTube and it looks great. And if you've got any interest in that from back in the day, I think it's worth a look. I've never seen it, but I'm a, I'm a little curious, I guess, because I've heard a lot about Babylon 5. Yeah, it's, it's a pretty dense story to start here, I think. But I think keep an eye out for the remake. While I've been talking, I've been reminded, did I talk about Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse, which I made it to the cinema to see? No, you did not. I better mention that then. So I did get to the cinema with my youngest daughter. We've been very excited about the new Spider-Verse film. We watched the first one. I think it's one of the best bits of filmmaking slash animation slash story that I'd seen in some years. I think it's still available on Netflix. If not, it might be on Disney+. Plus. If you haven't seen it, it's easily the best Spider-Man film, the first one, and possibly one of the best films <laughs> in the last five years. Because insight. Have you seen the original? Yes, I have seen it. Yeah. I tried to get my children to watch it. Because I wanted them to see some different type of animation, it did not stick with them. But I actually really enjoyed it. I, I just think it's a it's a masterpiece of of the various animation styles and the references to the '60s and all the characters and all the spider lore. And it's the best multiverse film that's been produced in the last few years, anyway. And that includes the Marvel films, you know, Doctor Strange and all the rest. Anyway, part two is more of the same and possibly better. I think I need another watch to decide, you know, how much better it is, but. What an enthralling piece of entertainment. So well done. It was gripped from beginning to end. And it was long. It was like two and a half hours long as well. So a third film to come in September. But that was terrific. If you've got any interest in these things at all, watch the first one and watch Cross Spider-Verse. You, sorry, you said a third one in September. That, that seems very close together. Yeah, they filmed two and three together and split them. Wow, okay. That must have been a hell of an undertaking and possibly explains why we've had such a big gap between one and two. Exactly. I think it's done quite well for Sony because it is a Sony film. Some amazing voice talent there, great soundtrack, but just the animation is beautiful. No, I did really enjoy the animation. I thought, fair play, they've done something different in that space. And they just did their own thing, and they had their own style. And I I think we needed a bit of that, because everything was getting all a bit round-textured and shaded on a computer, and the, the Pixar look, basically. Which yeah. I do like, I'm a big Pixar fan, but others were copying it, and it's nice to see something else. No, it's truly, it was truly revolutionary, I think. And, and if you have a sort of a familiarity with those comics from the sort of 60s, 70s that had that sort of dot printing effect as part of the paper, and you're looking to, to replicate things like that in some aspects of the animation. And some of the some of the 
universes they go to run at a higher frame rate than, than the other ones, which is just incredible technology to sort of flip back and forth to give you the feeling that the animation you're looking at is more classic. You know, at one point they jump into a Lego universe as well, and it's all built within Lego. And that animation style from the Lego movie, which the directors, Lord and Miller, actually made as well. So they sort of keep that sort of consistent look and feel even across self-referentially within the thing. So it's a metaverse movie, and it's very meta. That's cool. All right, I'll, I'll try and fit that one into. Brilliant. Have you been to see anything? No, I haven't really watched very much at all, so I will apologise. I did watch a bit of A View to a Kill with my children, and they really like the Eiffel Tower scene where the lady jumps off and you have the car chase with the Renault and the Renault gets cut in half. Yeah, I thought, that's... I thought they'd quite enjoy that bit. That's quite good. I seem to remember Top Gear doing a race with those kinds of cars when they did their Bond special. I'm just trying to get them into... Films I quite enjoy, and I wanted to watch, I want to go back and rewatch a few of the Bond films. So I thought it might be up their street a little bit. No, I think that's a reasonable thing, and it's got a really good soundtrack. Is that the Duran Duran one, View to Kill? Yes, I think it is. Yeah, that's that's a, that's a pretty solid soundtrack. It's it's not a great film, although Christopher Walken is is has got some high value, and it's Grace Jones in that as well, isn't it? Yep. Yeah, very good. Good. Okay, well done. I think it's a good thing to watch through the Bond films again. Anything else in media? Sadly, not. We don't have that much in games either, do we? You think we'd been doing other things for the last week. So first one moving into games is a game called Dorf, or it's a demo or a video for a game called Dorf, which I saw the little clip for and I immediately thought of you. Yeah, this is right up my street. So you sent this over. It's made by some of the people I think that did Command & Conquer back from late 90s, you know, Westwood Studios, and I love those games. And actually, it looks fantastic. It looks really interesting how they've done it. And I did go off and watch a few of the other videos. So we've got a link to the Rock Paper Shotgun article in the news and in the show notes, sorry. And then there's a YouTube overview trailer. But then they've got some other trailers about how they've like designed the mechanics of the vehicle. So if it's like a tracked vehicle, it will go quickly over mud. Whereas if it's a non-tracked vehicle, it knows to drive around the mud if you've set the waypoint to be the other side of it. That that kind of thing. But it, a lot of the animation and that looked very command and conquer s we've got three different sides that you can be on they've all got their different colors they've got the different strengths and weaknesses and yeah i thought it looked good i did find that some of the rts games got a bit complicated as they went on i actually quite like the simplicity of command and conquer it's you need some resources you need some troops and off you go so i'm interested to see what it's like and it is making me wonder do i need to find my Windows device and boot it up and see if it's got the right specs to play because I I can't even remember what's in it now. It's an old laptop I use for a few games every now and again. So yeah, super interesting this one. It's, it's good to see something in this space. Yeah, I thought it would appeal to you, and I I like an old fashioned real time strategy game. I got to say, and let's face it, Westwood Studios who made Command and Conquer started all this when they did Dune Two back in the day, and then then it became Blizzard with Warcraft, Orcs and Humans. See, that computer game documentary is working out really well for me now. I remember all that stuff. You need to put the link in the show notes. That's a useful time to remind me. Please and there's a, there's a second one that you might want to talk to as well. Yeah, so you also sent a link to a game called Stormgate, which actually looks a lot like StarCraft 2. And if anybody likes a, a real-time strategy game, real, and I don't think we've covered it, but a real-time strategy game where you you know select units and you move them around the map and you just have to de- defeat the other team and they're a different colour to you. But StarCraft 2 and WarCraft 3 were fantastic games. Well, probably more StarCraft 2. And again, this one 
leans in a bit more to that to that universe and that style so it looks amazing these games do look fantastic i must say so i think we've got some interesting stuff coming and yeah i'm interested in this space maybe i'll get me back into playing a bit more on the pc yeah or and hopefully we'll get to it later there are, may actually be a mac option for direct x11 and DirectX 12 games that we could look into as well so yeah well, we could just talk about that bit now actually as we're here i guess so one thing that's come out of WWDC, and we did touch upon it last week, is Apple looking at improving how game developers can port their games much easier over to Mac. I think the Macs always had this problem. Historically, they didn't have enough hardware in them to most of them to drive a good game. They didn't have the right graphics cards, but now the hardware is a lot better. Whilst they don't have dedicated graphics cards, they've got much better graphics capability. And so I think Apple are trying to combat the lack of really recent games by providing better tools because they announced at last year's WWDC that Resident Evil Village was coming but that game was already a few years old they announced that No Man's Sky was coming and that's just come out and again that game's a few years old and then they announced Death Stranding's coming and that game's four years old so the Mac's getting a few games but really old games and I think what they're trying to do with this game porting kit is have the ability to bring over really recent games much quicker and I guess they're trying to remove the friction for developers to do it so you don't have to code specifically for Apple. They've got this tool to do a lot of the porting and then you can optimise any issues of slowness. That was my take on it. Yeah, I think that's accurate. And some games work better than others. So I, I think I put a link in last week's show notes actually to Michael Tsai who'd done a little video talking about how excited he was with this and actually got some of it to work. It's not straightforward. You obviously need the beta of the next version of macOS. You've got some bits and pieces to do within that. It's, it's console commands, but you can actually get it to run. And I watched one of his videos and the kinds of games he was trying and they were up-to-date DirectX 11 and DirectX 12 games. So if you're into this kind of thing, Elden Ring was the star of the last year. It's a From Software game. It's very, very hard. You beat the boss, you work on it. It's open world as well. Looks amazing. You die a lot in it. He managed to get that running at 60 frames per second, I think, which is reasonable on an M1 MacBook Pro. Which is fantastic for a laptop, isn't it? It's really good. And Grand Theft Auto V works flawlessly at 60 frames per second on the Windows version of the game from Steam. Cyberpunk 2077, another game that's, I think, about 18 months old, which is a horrendously buggy game. The launch was a disaster on PC as well. In the busier areas, I think the frame rate drops to sort of 13, 14 frames per second. But when it's a bit more open world and things are going, you're up to sort of 30, 40s. So you've got a measured success rate on some of these games some are better than others but that's true on pc as well but the fact you can run any of these games at all on a on a mac laptop that fans in is fascinating yes and the tool as well that allows you to port it it's a real feat of engineering i think to be fair to apple and it's it seems to have been launched a bit low-key but it's actually really interesting i guess though the proof's going to be in the pudding of actually how many people use the tool, bring games to the Mac, and a year from now, will we will we be in a different place where most people have got the new version of macOS installed that's going to come out probably in October time, and have we got a nice arrangement of games that are released within the last, I don't know, 12 to 18 months rather than the last three to four years? But it is fascinating, you know, you talk about Dorf for one of those games that are likely to be able to run perfectly well on something like this. We're not going to see a Command and Conquer run through this because of the kernel protections that are built into it. It wants a Windows kernel for anti-cheat reasons. But the more sort of single-player games, the ones that are less likely to be cheated on and the ones that are a bit less aggressive about their IP, maybe, would would should run fine on a tool like this. So to have that ability to be able to play a reasonably up-to-date game on your £2,000 laptop, 
I think is really good. It looks like it's slightly less opt optimized for M2 Max because there was another test using it on M2 Ultras. And it's the Ultra chip in particular that seems to cause the problem for the porting toolkit. And the theory is because that's basically two M1 Maxes stuck together, there's something in it being able to deal with the number of cores or being able to deal with the intra-chip communication between the two chips that's, that may be causing a problem. It runs better on M1s and has been optimized for those. All oh, right. Well, I'm, I'm sure that will improve over time. But I'd like to see it so you could open Steam on your Mac and there's actually a good selection of recent games in it, whereas it's actually sadly disappointing. Well, this is an experience I've got from the Steam Deck and from trying to game on Linux is that you fire up Steam and it presents you with every game you've ever bought and you go, okay, and you click the little button that's got the penguin on it to show you the Linux ones and it decreases from the, I think we talked about this before, 200 plus to 8 or whatever it is that runs on Linux. But if you install the Proton shim layer effectively, it's something similar to this. It stays more or less constant with what you were seeing on the Windows side. Only a couple of them drop out of that list. So you could imagine a situation where Valve you know, managed to do something, uh, an, uh, an installer for, for Mac users that does something similar, where they go, okay, these are the Mac games, and there are some, let's face it, you can play Civilization Six and others on the Mac, but being able to keep that bigger list that you've got for when you are on the go, or you haven't got a Windows machine, or you haven't got a PlayStation or something like that, or you want to play something like Dorf, which is only ever going to be a PC kind of game. You know, I can't see that coming to a console at any point. That's really, really, really interesting. Yeah, no, I think it'd be good. I'd love to have a few of these games on my Mac because then I don't need a PC device. So for me, if I can have less devices, it's probably a win and I would probably buy more. You do like to simplify, I know. I just don't want lots and lots of devices. I've got too much tech as it is, I think. Fair enough. I will very, very briefly talk about a game I managed to find sort of 20 minutes to play this week. I haven't had enough time, but I will go back to it because it's fantastic. Well, it looks fantastic. It's called Pentiment. And its art style is like a medieval scroll, a bit like the Bayou Tapestry, if you can imagine that, in motion with the characters moving around or something. And it's a murder mystery set in something like the 11th or 12th century, I think. An extremely well done game, well narrated, but the art style is just fantastic. So compelling plot, good characterization, but just it's such a unique looking thing. And I'd encourage you to go and look at YouTube or something about, about Pentiment. It's free on Xbox Games Pass. I think it's available on Windows and possibly Mac through this. I don't know if it's one I'll have to look for. But yeah, really quite a cool little game. Do you like the art style? Because it's a bit retro, shall we say. And does it remind you of games of, of long gone by? I don't think it's that. I think it's I appreciate the effort that's gone into making it look like that. I like a modern game. I, and don't, I like a retro game as well. But this is just a sort of sweet spot between... I appreciate the efforts the developers have put into it to make it look exactly like something like the Bio Tapestry in motion. Fair enough. Fair enough. I think that'll do us for games. Should we move on to the main show? Yeah, into the main show then. So, you have beated all of the things, so I'm going to let you do most of the talking here. Tell us about your beta experiences on iOS and iPadOS, Chris. Okay, so I've yeah I've pretty much installed all, all the betas other than my HomePod at this point. So, I've got a, a range of experiences. I probably have used the Mac the least, just because I've had a busy work week, and I've been away a little bit, and I always have to use my iPad for work. So, not quite a lot to say about the Mac other than I've installed it. And it seems fine. So not a lot to comment on. Nothing's really broken for me. I have had a play around with the new version of Xcode. And they've done loads. And I know this is a developer podcast. But they've done loads for the developer side. I know they talked a little bit about it in the main keynote we referenced last week. But there is loads for developers under the hood. So Apple, 
I think to be fair to them, they've launched a new platform, they've launched all these new OSs, and they've done loads on the developer side. That it feels like they're operating on all cylinders. To, to be fair, so main device I'm using obviously is my phone and my iPad. They're my key devices. First off, they're both on iOS or iPadOS 17. First off, battery life is not fantastic. My phone depletes the battery quite quickly. I'm noticing it. I'm just having to drop out the MagSafe charger a bit more, or plug it in when I'm in my car. So that's word of warning, don't install these just yet. It will improve, it's the same every year. If anybody's out there wanting these betas, wait for the public beta. That is the time to jump on if you're interested. Secondly, widgets. So the iPad brought widgets to the home screen, which is nice, but because I largely use it on a secondary display, I hadn't really noticed them, if I'm honest. It's great, I can change the, the font for the clock and you know do the focus wallpapers. That, that is something I do use on my iPhone. That's good. And then the widget's got interactive. I haven't used them a huge amount, but it's just great, just with the music widget, that you can just tap play when you see an album there, rather than tapping on the album, going into music, and then tapping play. So that little bit of interactivity they're bringing looks really good, and I'm keen to see how third parties make the most of it. So the widgets generally, I think, are really good, and Apple have iterated on the widgets year on year. So really pleased with that. But not not life-changing. I did just note the music player on iOS. So if you listen to music in Apple Music and they've got the new fancy album art that can be animated, that's now all full screen and takes over a lot more of the the album screen, which I quite like because you're a bit more immersed in in the album and the colour scheme of the album. So I just thought that was a nice piece to add. Other than that, on the iPhone, I haven't noticed a huge amount of difference. Messages, I think, is a little better. If you want to reply to something in line, you can just swipe to the right and tap reply which is nice because you don't need to load up the pop-up menu to reply so there's some nice little quality of life enhancements but it's not a revolutionary update you know it's not like all the icons have changed we've got new buttons on the whole it all, all seems pretty good but most people probably wouldn't even know i'm running ios 17 if that makes sense so i'll, um, I'll weigh in because this is one of the betas i have installed i agree with your point on battery life it always is significantly worse than the beta and it is significantly worse than this first developer beta I'd say I'd get three quarters of the way through the day and if I didn't charge it, it would be dead, depending on how much you use it. It does seem I've got a little bit better today, I've got to say, that it hasn't gone down quite so quickly. Music player, I haven't really noticed. What I did notice is there's a new feature in iOS 17 beta where you can fade between tracks as opposed to it just stopping and moving on to the next one, which is the way it's been forever. As soon as I turned that on, my settings app crashed. As soon as I went back into it again, my settings app crashed. So I'm just going to leave that alone. I managed to turn it on, but I obviously can't turn it off now because the settings app crashes every single time. Some of the features seem to have vanished, like the, forget the, na- the, the exact name of it, I'm going to do this all year like I did with Stage Manager last year. The sort of expected time of arrival thing, which when you did the pop-up thing in messages, it would give you the ETA. You know, if you're wanting to watch somebody or you want to tell somebody when you were going to arrive. Check in. Check in seems to have vanished from one of the features that I've got on the plus menu on my phone. So I don't know if that's, if I did it to you, it might appear because you're also running iOS 17. Maybe it's because I've been messaging other people, but it was definitely there when I first installed the beta and it isn't anymore. You might need to just tap the down arrow and look in the next menu because I've just found it. Sorry. It's, my, my, my phone is filming me at the moment, so I, I, won't, I won't go and look now. Otherwise, you'll, Chris will know where he's, what's going on. The thing that made me install it was I tried this on a sort of, I wouldn't call it a burner phone, but a second phone now, and everything was working. My banking apps were working. Nothing was crashing. And that's still been the case as my apps have largely been quite stable for the pre-installed ones, which surprised me. It's the first beats I've had where 
haven't found an app yet that doesn't work. Obviously, none of them been particularly update, haven't been updated for this because you can't as a developer. The one thing I was hoping would be better that I'm not 100% convinced is yet is the new keyboard. I think it's slightly improved, but I don't think it's a great revolution. It hasn't changed my world, but I don't think it's definitely better, I would say, for me personally. I guess I'm making less mistakes, but I'm also paying more attention to some of the other features, that, like the, the lines that appear under things. And if you if you delete a word by accident and you, hit, you go back, it offers to to you know bring it back onto the screen again, and that's quite nice. So, yeah, it's better, but it's not a revolution. Yeah, I'd concur with that. One thing I did do is I downloaded the maps for the area where I live, and you can say how, how much you want to download. And I was driving in my car, actually, and it popped up on CarPlay and went, using offline maps. I thought, that's quite nice. That's that's what I want. So I must say that that feature seemed quite good. But no, other than that thing on the iPhone, I was just having a look now just to see if there are any features I've missed while we were talking. Not really. The one thing I haven't used, which I wouldn't mind to try, is standby. So where you have your phone horizontally on a MagSafe or on a, on a stand and you get a different screen. And I haven't seen that and I don't have a dock for it. So I have seen that. I've seen it a lot. I've seen it more than I wanted, actually, in a couple of situations. The first time I did it, my nightstand, Americans call it, my bedside table, has a a Belkin Boost Charge Pro equivalent, which has got a kickstand on it. Putting it in that is enough to go into it. I don't know if it remembers being in that, like the Apple ones, because I don't think they work in exactly the same way. But it's not bad. It goes red because the lights are off. I get a clock on one side. I can swipe between them. Works fine. Quite like that. I don't have an always-on display, though, so I have to tap the phone to get it to come up. So that's, eh, I'm not 100% convinced of the utility on something you need to tap, but there it is. It'll be better on your phone and presumably next year's iPhone, which will all probably have always on, dis- on displays if they're going to do something like this. Yeah, um, you've got to assume all, all the iPhones in the fall will have that, and then you'll have one. And then I'll have one. But it's actually equally irritating. So it took me a while to work out what we're doing now, where I do co- the continuity camera to share my iPhone, that it wasn't always doing it. And that's because I charge my phone while I stick it to the magnetic camera mount on top of the monitor. That's enough to put it into that display mode. And until you agree to it in the first place, it wasn't always activating the camera. It was intermittent enough that it was causing me problems. So that was irritating because the phone faces away from me when it's in the mount. I can't see what it's doing on the screen. So that's a problem, I think, for this kind of technology, if they're going to do that. Yeah, they they need some smarts in there, don't they? They really do, because I've got a, we talked about this before, this should be something that charges while your phone's parked up up there while you're doing it, and I've got a cable plugged in at the moment, which isn't ideal. So that's that, and then the second part is, I talked about it earlier with the CarPuride review, I've still got an Apple MagSafe charger in the van to charge the phone when I'm in there, it's great, I just slap it on there. I have an iPhone 13 Pro Max, so I have to put it horizontally on the map. If I put it on the mount, if I put it vertically, there's not enough adhesion in the magnet and it falls off the first time I go over a speed bump. So putting it on the mount in that orientation activates the display thing. So I then can't tap the phone when I'm sitting in the car. It's showing me the night the nightstand mode. So that's not ideal either. Yeah, I hadn't thought about that actually. And I guess why you have to put your phone horizontally. Yeah, because you haven't got the weight pulling it down and thus falling off. So I, I, it's one feature, I like the look of it, but I've not used it one iota, sadly. Fair enough. But as for iPadOS, Slay the Spire still works. That's that's my only comment on iPadOS 17. So iPadOS has got largely the same stuff iOS has got, as we just discussed. But it does have stage manager improvements, and stage manager is definitely better. Um, you can 
more finely arrange the apps. It's still not as fine as you can arrange the apps on Mac. And I was just using the Mac now as we were podcasting. I was just lining everything up and it's pixel perfect. I just want that on my iPad. Why, why are they making it complicated? But what it has seems to have improved, if you go down to the dock on the iPad and you hold the shift key, it will then just pop that app onto that stage, which is perfect. I would like to have seen them increase the limit of four apps to more to more apps on one stage because I don't really want lots of stages. I just want everything. I've got 5K screen. Just put everything on my 5K screen, please. But they seem hell bent on having multiple stages but on the whole really good and generally really solid i've had very few crashes if any it works really well with my 5k studio display i have installed the beta update to the studio display that should make it work with the ipad because the one feature i can't use but i really want is the ability for microsoft teams to use the camera in my studio display so that i can do conference calls using that camera and i don't need to be peering at my smaller ipad but i think i need microsoft to update teams for that the ipad works with it and facetime works with it and you've got more fine-grained controls when you do the firmware upgrade around lighting and, and all of that with the camera so i think they have made some improvements to the camera and the monitor but i just need the third party apps to be updated so i can take advantage of all of that but on the whole i would recommend the updates and I think when the public beers come out they'll be ready for most people. Have you tried the presenter mode thing on the Mac then? Because that they didn't need to do anything that was built in for Teams and Zoom, right? No, because I don't use the Mac for work. I only use my iPad. Well, come on, we need this feedback. I'm not installing it on this one. I need to record the podcast. I can't use my Mac for work, so that's that. <laughs> okay, moving on. So we can't, well, you can still try the game thing out though. TVOS. Yeah, so TVOS, very briefly. Control centers, a lot better, really nicely done. Love what they've done there. You can like pull down your doorbell camera. You can change audio a bit quicker. It's just nice. They've just got, they've got that right now, I think. And it's obviously a lot more obvious where it is on the screen. And then also on the home screen now, you had, I think, five icons across before on the home screen. You now have six icons. No brainer. They've just made everything a little bit smaller because they are quite chunky icons. And I'll be honest, I think this should be a setting you could have some more icons on there. We could easily get a seventh. So I'd like to see that. But no, really good. The TV, I've only got it on the TV in my, in, my, in my cabin, but I use it all the time and it's been fantastic. I think it's good. I wish they'd let us do something similar on our iPads and phones, actually. I remember what a revolution it was. When it was a software update to the iPad and they let us put another icon in the dock and another right. So come on, it's just a grid of icons. All of these devices are just a grid of icons. So give us a bit more control. I really want them to do a Pro Max that's got the more space setting that they launched on the iPad last year because it should have it. It's got enough screen, whereas it's just a slightly bigger regular-sized iPhone, sadly. They, they need to do more with that screen as a differentiator, I think, because they've got the pixels for it. So why wouldn't they do it? And then lastly, on the, the home TV piece, was lights. For some reason, my HomeKit plugs, my Eve plugs have been fairly solid, I'm having intermittent usage with them using my iPhone to turn my bedside light on and off. And I have to use my wife's iPhone, which is obviously not on any of the betas. And I don't know if it's my iPhone that's on a beta or where I've got one of the TVs upgraded to a beta or what. But that is so frustrating because the home stuff for me was in quite a good place. But now the lights have been a bit patchy. So I'm hoping next beta should come out next week. I think it's a public holiday in America on Monday. So as soon as we get one, maybe Tuesday or Wednesday, I'm hoping that will improve it. Sometimes three weeks for the second beer. Oh, I'm holding on to next week. <laughs> so that, that's what I've got on TV. Have you used TVOS at all? I have not. Okay. 
it's, it's such a minor update. I think it's worth it. And I've got a big FaceTime icon now on my TV. So again, as soon as it's in public beta, I will put it on the other TVs, I think, because it, it seems really good and it'd be nice to move over to it. And then watchOS. So interesting story on watchOS. The OS is nowhere near as revolutionary as we were led to believe. I think pre-WWDC, they were saying, there's loads coming, it's going to be amazing. It's come. It is good. They've made some really good changes. They're taking advantage of the screen. If you're a developer, you can now do a toolbar and you can put icons at the, uh, sorry, a tab bar at the bottom. You can now do icons at the top left and right. You can have background colors. They're really making the most of it, but it's not that revolutionary. I must confess this week, for some reason, I've stopped wearing my Apple Watch and I've just gone back to a mechanical watch for a bit because I, I think I fancied a change. I don't know why. I've just fallen out of it. I, I can't explain it. I'm shocked. Shocked. I'm surprised because I was counting all my steps and I, st- I was looking at my phone actually. I'm still doing all my walking and, and all of that, but just, I don't know, just fancy the change. It was quite nice when I was away. It was one less device to charge at, at night. But yeah, I don't know. Um, maybe I'll be back on it next week. The Apple Watch Ultra has served you from Apple Watches, dear or dear? I love the Apple Watch Ultra, but for some reason I just fancy wearing my mechanical watch. Fair enough. Monitor OS. We, which we've covered. I talked okay. about that more under the, the iPad piece, but it's great they've released the firmware for the monitor now because it took them about six months to get it out for the last version of, of the monitor, so it's good they're keeping it up to date. Fine, good. Okay, so maybe more news next week when we get another beta up and running, but I'm you know, I'm running what I'm running on. I can't say I've noticed much that much difference really other than the battery life. Good, okay, we've got a few extra snippets that have come out about some of the devices they've announced and since WWDC. One thing you want to talk about is John Gruber's talk show live. Yeah, I just thought I'd put this in there. So John Gruber, who runs Daring Fireball, every year at WWDC, he meets with some Apple execs and it's usually filmed and it's free. So it's now posted on YouTube, went up at the weekend and it's got their senior vice president of marketing he stays for the whole show but then they have three other people that come on the first one being john turnus who introduced all the mac hardware and and they obviously ask questions about the mac and where they're going with it then they had and i'm going to get the gentleman's name wrong i think it's mike who brought out the vision os platform and headset and they obviously talked to him for quite a while about all of that and then they bring out craig federighi who's been on quite a few years and they discuss the operating systems and and some of the strategy if you're into apple and where they're going it's just interesting to see their execs talk relatively casually i was going to say relatively openly which it probably is for apple it's obviously still fairly limited answers but but they talk quite freely and i I think it's a good show it is two hours long it's a long one this year because he's got so many guests but something nice just to maybe have on the background if you're interested yeah, he put me off a couple of years ago because it was all about John Gruber, which is fair enough. It's it's based on this to podcast, I guess. So, yeah, I, I I might have a look at it. I quite like Craig Federici. I quite like his sense of humor. His dad jokes have got are, are very good. I particularly liked his one about having multiple timers on the iPhone and saying, you know, what times we live in, or truly, truly, the great times are ahead of us. So, and that is actually a nice feature of iOS is you can set multiple timers now and see them. And it was nice in a way they are self aware and. Like with the ducking joke on the the keyboard. The only question, the only problem I had, I think, with the talk show is John Gruber does spend too long trying to work out how he's going to word the question. Uh, and he has very wordy questions. It'll be interesting to see how much talking he did and how much the guests did. That would be my yeah. one, one yeah. bit of criticism. Yeah, I, I don't get me wrong. I don't want to. Who would dare criticize John Gruber? He's a, he's a titan in, 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 in you know, documenting Apple things. But, but, 
I think he could be fairly criticized for being a bit too positive about Apple from time to time. He's slightly more on the shell side occasionally. To be fair, he actually, I thought, asked some questions I didn't think he was going to ask. So he did go a bit more into it this time. Good. I often think they get to sign off on what questions he's allowed to ask before they'll agree to come out on stage with them, though. I would have thought so, but it's still quite a good watch. And stay if you watch it, watch all the way to the end. Fair enough. Okay. A little bit of news that came out about the Vision Pro. A few people have worn it. Other podcasters, Mike Hurley and Jason Snell, both wore it. Both gave very positive reviews back, actually, about what what an experience it was. Both of them, like us, were very doubtful about this isn't a device they want in their lives. I think both of them have since said, actually, shut up and take my money. Frankly, about $3,500 doesn't seem so much even though they had some comments at the end saying, well, actually, my face was kind of sore. My neck had got kind of sore wearing it even for the 30 minutes that they've been wearing it for. So that's a concern to have that sort of heavy device on your head for that. Like the time, time to get the neck physio and neck exercises out and build your muscles up if you're going to get one. But a little bit of news about the Vision Pro itself is that the cameras are locked. So unlike the iPhone where third-party developers are able to make use of the camera, write their own apps for it, the Vision Pro, you're not going to be able to do that. And I presume that's a privacy thing. Hmm. Maybe it's a privacy thing or maybe they just haven't got to it yet in that there's so many cameras on that thing. How would they expose it and do it in the right way? And maybe there's just engineering to be done there because we know these products aren't aren't the finished thing. I'm, su- I'm surprised, but I'm not surprised if that makes sense because I think they've actually got quite a good API layer on the iPhone for third-party developers, but it took time to get there. So maybe they need a bit of time for that because this is, this is different, very different. Or maybe they don't expose too much because there's some secret sauce in there. And so maybe they will come, but in future years, once people have caught up and it's been out in the wild a lot longer. Maybe. Interesting, though, that they're already sort of laying out some things for how it's going. And again, from a privacy point of view, when we saw Sad Dad sort of taking pictures of his, his child's party rather than interacting, you know, you wouldn't want somebody else potentially to have access to those cameras. I, I, I don't know. I mean, let's face it, iOS's security is reasonable. It's certainly no worse than, than than Android. So, you know, there's there's a few considerations in there when you're talking about these kinds of devices, I guess. Yeah, no, that's true. I must confess, after listening to those podcasts, I really want to try one. Whether I'll end up getting one is another question, and it's obviously a financial question in there too, but I do just want to try it just to see what it's like, and I really like the direction Apple have taken where they've not tried to do anything weird and wonderful like they did with like the first watch OS. They've just tried to do a generic OS it takes all of their skills of to me it feels like they've just fought the ipad they've just gone ipad os file save as vision os right that's our start for 10 now let's make it 3d and operate and i think it's really interesting what they've done and i like this more of a generic computing device than a this is just for games or this is just for conferencing it's a spatial computing device it's It's not a spatial computing device On that, it's quite interesting. The Verge just did a funny little thing about all the places Apple sees you using a Vision Pro. Link in the show notes. Basically, where Apple sees you using a Vision Pro is sort of sprawled on the couch as much as anything else. That That's where they see you using it. Instead of looking at your TV, you're going to be sprawled on the couch or sitting in a chair using your Vision Pro. So I, I think that's reasonable, but it's just quite a funny article when you see all the pictures in isolation. Yeah, Apple... Apple did a did a lot of scenarios for this, and it's amazing it didn't leak. How many people must have been involved in this? For me, though, all I want to see is where's the guy working from home sat in his shed. That's that's the one I want to see because that, that would be me because I don't think I'd use it in any of these situations. Yeah, the, the the very strange little clip of somebody walking to the fridge to grab a beer or something while they're wearing their Vision Pro is is blows my mind slightly. I mean, I get the point of the demo that the cameras on it are so good you can navigate your space and you're not going to be surprised people coming into it, but 
isn't that a chance to take it off your face? Are you not meant to take breaks from your computer? Yeah, and wait till somebody face plants the floor and cracks one of these things and Apple won't replace it. I think they think people are going to use it a lot more than what I would like people to use it because I'm a big fan of get away from the screen every now and again. So that is a concern. Yeah, anyway, a funny little article. One thing that has become common to Debon upon post-WWDC is this is the WWDC. That's a lot of W's to say, WWDC where they were meant to be announcing the rule changes that the EU are about to enforce upon them. So where is sideloading in iOS 17? Yeah, I was surprised by this because it was meant to come for EU. And I thought, oh, it's not in the keynote, kind of makes sense, but maybe they just press release it. Maybe it's coming later, maybe it's a separate thing. I don't know, maybe it will just be region-specific because most of WWDC is generally for everybody, not region-specific, but I thought this would get announced. Maybe they're just not going to talk about it and it'll just appear one day. On the, on the day the, the law changes, suddenly there'll be an option to turn it on and then they'll never publicise it. Yeah, true. And I guess why they want people talking about sideloading right now when they should be talking about Vision OS and taking advantage of all the new stuff they've done. And maybe they're focusing all their energy on that and then it will just come quietly at some point. Anyway, I'm sure more stories will drop about Vision OS when developers actually get their hands on them. And, and let's not get too excited about the fact that this is a product that's not going to be around until next year and then only in America. Yeah, it's got some time to go, yeah, hasn't it? But I think we're getting um, coding simulators soon, some point in the summer. Another thing I'm surprised about that it didn't launch for that, to build up all the hype for the product in front of developers, to have all the, all the various sessions with people and, you know, you can watch them on the developer app or on the website now. Why yeah, haven't you? Maybe they didn't want to open up to more people internally ahead of time and worried about it leaking. But yet so many, I don't know, a thousand people must have known about it before we went live with all the marketing guys and girls knowing and doing the website and doing all those videos and all the actors and, and all the people that made the hardware and designed it and the developers. So I don't know why you wouldn't then do the last hurdle, but may, maybe they just needed more time to get it to fully bake. Some of the developer sessions, they still refer to it as XROS apparently. Yeah. And they really did keep the name hidden, which was quite a feat. Yeah, not bad. Chris saw a 15-inch M2 MacBook Air. Yeah, so I was actually in John Lewis yesterday. And they had, they advertised, they had a MacBook Air 15-inch and they had the M2 Studio, Mac Studio, sorry, I had a blank on the name. The Mac Studio was still an M1 Mac Studio, but how would you know the difference unless you go to about this Mac? But they did have the 15-inch MacBook Air. Looked nice was heavier than I thought and looks very bizarre because there's no speaker grills. It just looks odd having a reasonable amount of metal or aluminium to the right and left of the keyboard tray that hasn't got anything on it. It just There's just no speakers visible on the top. The speakers come out the back by the hinge and I'm sure Apple have engineered it but it just felt like, have you over-engineered this to not have the speaker grills? Maybe that's the differentiator but I thought it looked a great product. I think Apple's laptops right now, they're the best they've ever been, and they should be the best they've ever been. We've got the best technology, time's moved on, this is a product that should get better. But we did have a period where Apple's laptops weren't the best they've ever been because they had faulty keyboards, they didn't have enough ports on them. But I think now where they've got is you've got the two Airs, so the 13 and the 15, you've got the two Pros, the 14 and the 16, which I really like that they've got that differentiator there of the screen sizes, the odd and the even numbers, because I think that's quite cool. And it also gives you room if you wanted to do an 11 and a 12 version, if you want to go, go go down the smaller avenue. But the laptops all look fantastic. 
I could easily recommend one of these to somebody. It's a great device, nice big screen, not too expensive in the current climate. Yep, I'm with you. I think they're great devices. And as the computer gaming segment we talked about, actually they may perform better in some ways than the Mac Studio. And it just highlights to me how great the laptops are. I think the Mac Studio is a great product. I think the Mac Mini is a great product. I don't understand the Mac Pro. I completely agree on that. The Mac Pro makes sense if it was a thousand pounds more expensive than the Mac Studio, in my view. It does not make sense to be three thousand pounds more expensive because that's just obscene. I would, yep. if I was having a desktop Mac, I would love a Mac Pro so I could put some hard drives in it, really have loads of data in there. That'd be great. But I would pay a premium, but not three thousand pounds. That's just crazy money well there's your vision pro right there but yeah you could buy it you're right you could buy a studio and get a vision pro or one mac pro which gives you zero performance i just think the pricing's all wrong on it for what you get it should be more but it should be balanced more and maybe they should even do a mac pro which has got a max chip in it so that again it's just offering expansion if people want an expansion device they're tackling that end of the market. So I think they could do a bit more with the Mac Pro, but it feels like they're really pushing it so niche and so expensive that they want it to fail. I hadn't thought about this last week, but one of the other sort of major features of the Mac Pro was not only you can stick video cards in it and expand it, is you can put lots of memory in it as well. So you've got lots of memory-bound tasks. You could put 1.5 terabytes of RAM in the Intel Mac Pro. Do you know how much you can put in the M1, M2 one? I'm going to say one nine. Two or one nine eight. I think it's one nine two. One nine two is spot on. That is a fraction of what you could load up the Intel one with. Yeah, it is. And I think if they were going to do the Mac Pro with the Extreme chip in it, then you probably have double the RAM again. But they haven't done that Extreme chip, which is like in essence two Ultras, which would be four Maxes, because I think they've cancelled it because they've realised there's just no market for it. No, but uh, I think they could have opened the Mac Pro up. I mean, if you remember back about 2008 they did a mac pro and you could buy it for about 1500 pounds and go all the way up to spending i don't know 5000 pounds on it but but you could get the basic version with the slower chip in it and a bit less ram but you still have the same case you could still put more hard drives in it i had one of these i think you might have had one of these and i think they should do that with the mac pro it's more of an expansion device but bring it down so you can have it in the lower markets and don't price it so ridiculous out there they've got to find a better point for it i think I think this is the last year of the Mac Pro. I think it'll, they'll forge ahead with the Mac Studio and that's the end of the Mac Pro. It's a shame because I'd love a nice tower with lots of expansion. Yeah, and after the trash can Mac Pro, it's 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 a shame because I like the box it comes in. It's over-engineered and it's ridiculous and I kind of like it. But that's what that should be. Yeah, shows what they can do. I think that'll do us for main show unless we've missed anything. No, just a note on the MacBook Air, we have put in the Six Colors review and the link to MKBHD and MKHP. BHD basically says it's the 13-inch one but with a bigger screen and that's yeah. what that laptop is. Yeah, you know who you are if you need a bigger screen on your laptop and I think it's, it's a good segment for them being good products. App of the week, very quick, very simple. It's called Kika. It's an archiving, unarchiving tool for the Mac. So it'll give you WinZip, it'll give you RAR files, it'll give you all, all the various formats you might want. has got a very crucial flag in it where you can set don't include Mac OS X OS 10 resource forks. So when you send it to Windows people, they won't see the weird shadow files that you used to get and probably still get back in the day. I've used Kika so long I don't actually know. It's faster than the archive tool built into Mac OS, the, the default one, and you can password protect things as well. 
It's a great little app. It's free if you download it direct from the website or you can pay for a little bit for it on the App Store. It's a terrific app. I've, I, I, I haven't recommended it before now because it's just so much part of my Mac usage. It's, I think, the third thing I install when I install a new Mac, so Akika. I've never heard of it. I love the icon. That is a cool icon. Fair play, they've taken a square and made a really good icon out of it. I think that's awesome. Yep, it's a great app. That looks good. Okay. Thing of the week. So thing of the week for me, a bit excessive this week. <laughs> a bit different than your free one. So I've bought a new television to go in my studio down the garden. Uh, and I love it. I've got a 43-inch LG, not OLED, but it's a 4K TV, which I've been wanting for a while. And I've got the latest one, the 2023 one, because I wanted the HDMI 2.1. Even though I'm not using it right now, I was more just trying to cover my bases. If ever I end up bringing a PlayStation down here or whatever it may be. So I just find, I love the LG stuff. It's not as nice as my big OLED. The screen is obviously not as good, the, the design of it. But for relatively cheap 43 inch tv fantastic and it's got the right footprint so it fits on my unit here because that is a problem with a lot of tvs where they've got the stands on the left and right hand side you need to have a wide unit to put the tv on whereas this one actually fits perfectly what i do find annoying with tvs you can get much bigger tvs for less money but you may not have the space to fit them they're encouraging people in a way to buy too big a tv for the space they have but no, super pleased with it. It's a great LG TV. They just make a really good product. I haven't put it on the internet. I've just really got it from Apple TV and my Nintendo Switch. And I am using the HomePod Minis as eARC speakers. That seems to be working well. I was playing on my Nintendo with it because I've got a dock down here. But just fan- fantastic TV. Can't recommend LG enough at the moment. What's the refresh rate on it? It does 120 hertz. Very nice, very nice. No, I think that's... Which is why I plumped for that newer version because I just thought I'm going to keep this for a long time because you don't really replace TVs that often unless they they fry. So 120 hertz, 2.1 HDMI. Nice TV, 100% agree. LG are the way to go at the moment. I think they've stolen a march on Samsung from the previous Samsung TVs I had. Not that there's anything particularly wrong with Samsung TVs, I've got to say. But no, it looks good and it's not a completely ridiculous price, like you say. Yeah, it's okay and... I got it with about £150 off, so I was quite comfortable with that. And on Amazon, they do that. Buy it now and pay over the next three months. But they've changed how that works in the UK. It now all backs off to Barclays. You've got to fill out paperwork. Whereas in the old days, you just chose the option, and it was all all within Amazon, and then they just took the money, and, and it was great. Whereas I, I don't know why they've backed it off to somebody else. I'm assuming there's a business reason in there. There probably is, or maybe it's a cooling off thing as well. That you know, if you've got to fill in the forms, do you really want this? You know, is this another thing you need to buy? Yeah, I'm comfortable with it. I was just trying to be good and, and, sp- and spread my payments out. But no, I would recommend if anybody's after a relatively, I say relatively small TV, 43 inches, still massive compared to when we were children. Not half. Well, it looks nice. Good TV. Yeah. And that was it. I think we can call that show. And that's the show so thank you to everybody for listening and if you want to get in contact Rod is at g5maniac at mastodon.scot I am at underscore cjp at mastodon.social and if you'd like to email us you can email us at wakefromsleep at protonmail.com talk to you next week Chris cheers Rod.